This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network in Latin American Studies, a podcast in the New Books Network. I am Kenneth Sanchez, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Francesca Lesa about her fascinating new book, The Condor Trials, Transnational Repression and Human Rights in South America. Dr. Francesca is a lecturer in Latin American Studies and Development at the University of Oxford. She's also the author of Memory and Transitional Justice in Argentina and Uruguay, and is an honorary president of the Observatorio Luz. Iberburu from Uruguay, a network of human rights NGOs devoted to the fight against impunity in that country. Thank you, Francesca, for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this book, The Condor Trials, explores two phenomena, the brutal transnational repression in South America between 1969 and 1981, masterminded by dictators, and two, the transnational justice, which was sought out by justice seekers, activists, victims' relatives, and many other actors of civil society. This dark and complicated period of South American history is expertly unraveled by Francesca and her new book, with an interesting emphasis, if I must say, on transnational networks, both past and present, that sought and still search for accountability and justice for these atrocities. Francesca, before we dive into the book, I think it will be valuable for our listeners to know more about the historical background of your book mainly what is Operation Condor and when and where did it take place? Operation Condor was a secret transnational network that was set up in late 1975 by the regimes of Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, Paraguay and Uruguay. Later on, we also have Brazil joining in 1976 as uh, Peru and Ecuador also did in late uh, 1977 and early 1978. Basically, what was happening at the time of the Cold War was that these uh, military uh, regimes that were in power throughout the region uh, were very much keen on being able to silence political exiles who had left their countries of origin and traveled across uh, the region in search of safety. Uh, Thousands of them had uh, basically sought uh, safe haven in Argentina that had a long tradition of receiving refugees, but was also in the mid-1970s the only country that hadn't yet fallen to a military coup that would later come in March 1976. And so in this context, we have a broad movement of exiles that even though they left their countries of origins, they remained very much politically active um, during their exile, and they were um, very successful at drawing attention and also international spotlight to the crimes that the military dictatorships of Pinochet, of uh, Bordaberry in Uruguay and also in Brazil, uh, to the systematic human rights violations that were being perpetrated. And so because of these shared goals and also a long tradition of uh, police and military collaborations in exchanging intelligence and keeping track of different groups that were considered to be enemies, they eventually, by late 1975, uh, decided to establish this formal network that we now know was called Operation Condor or uh, Condor System in the uh, South American documents that we've been able to see. And this um, Operation Condor effectively enabled these uh, military regimes to um, effectively suspend borders across the region and keep a close eye on all the political exiles, on what they were doing, on conducting joint abduction operations to illegally arrest them, interrogate them under torture, and in about uh, half of the cases, to subsequently murder or disappear them. 
So Operation Condor basically was the framework that enabled this uh, phenomenon of transnational repression to take place across uh, South America in the context of uh, authoritarian and military regimes at the, in, uh, in power in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Now about your book, you divide it in two parts, the first part on transnational repression and the second one on transnational justice, which are the two core elements of your book. I think as a start, you can tell us what transnational repression and transnational justice is and how the latter one clashes with a more common state-centric approach, which is usually how countries deal with human rights violence or abuses, if they ever do, that is. Sure. So uh, transnational repression is a, a practice whereby a state um, sort of seeks uh, to eliminate uh, or at least to monitor and control what um, refugees and exiles are doing in another state. So to give you an example from from the time of Operation Condor, there were uh, thousands uh, of Uruguayan political and social activists who were living in exile in Argentina. And as part of um, their activism, they set up uh, even political parties in exile. Uh, One example is the Party for the Victory of the People that was established in 1975. And this party um, had as its main objective to uh, bring attention to the crimes of the Uruguayan dictatorship. And so um, the Uruguayan dictatorship, of course, uh, didn't like at all that exiles were drawing international attention to the atrocities that were being committed. And so Uruguay, with the collaboration of uh, their Argentine counterparts, carried out operations, mostly in Buenos Aires, where the majority of exiles were living, in order to uh, abduct, interrogate, uh, torture, and often disappear hundreds of these uh, political exiles. And so this um, concept of transnational repression captures the way in which state conduct uh, operation beyond their sort of geographical space of their territory and reach out to the territory of another state in order to eliminate uh, refugees and exiles. Um, So we can see clearly how Operation Condor was in fact a, a specific system that enabled this practice of transnational repression to take place in South America at the specific period of time of the 1970s. Um, This phenomenon is quite challenging for uh, those of us that study international history and international relations because we know that states, as you said also in your question, are very jealous of their national sovereignty and they want to have... uh, the uh, only control on uh, on their territories, but also on who can uh, control violence within those territories. And so to have such coordinated and systematic practices whereby um, states decide that in fact they are in a way relinquishing <laughs> unique control over their territory in order to have these um, international operations Uh, because what we have with Condor is effectively joint um, international task forces of Uruguayan and Argentine agents or um, Argentine and Chilean agents conducting uh, abduction operations in each other's territories, which is unprecedented uh, in in many countries. And so this is why transnational repression is such a challenging phenomenon because it goes against many of the principles that we have in international relations. The counter side to that is the concept of transnational justice, which refers to the efforts that have been taking place from the very time in which the crimes of transnational repression were being committed in the 1970s and relate to the efforts of uh, numerous justice seekers, um, a concept that includes survivors, uh, victim relatives, human rights activists, but also journalists and lawyers 
that have been trying to, um, through different ways, to obtain justice for the transnational atrocities that were committed during Condor. And because the very crimes that they were trying to bring to court had been crimes that had crossed the borders of states, um, justice also had to be transnational in the sense that uh, in order to collect the evidence and the testimonies uh, that one needs to bring before a court of law, uh, it wasn't enough to just seek evidence in just one country as we normally do for uh, regular criminal trials, but in fact, Uh, the uh, evidence collection process had to take place across all of the countries where these crimes had been committed. Mm -hmm. In the first part of your book, which deals with transnational repression, as you previously mentioned, you outline five distinct phases of repression in this period of time in South America. I think this is very interesting and very helpful for readers as a timeline for this era when many dictatorships began to take power. Can you tell us more about these distinct phases and their characteristics? Indeed. So um, in the first part of the book, um, I talk about transnational repression as a broad concept. And I also try to um, place Operation Condor in a broader historical uh, context, because much of the existing uh, publications on Operation Condor, and this is not necessarily a criticism, because in fact, uh, trying to explain Operation Condor has been a very challenging um, task in terms of literally having to unravel secrets and dig out information. So it has taken a lot of time to just uh, understand what Condor was, and this is why many of the existing publications focus only on Operation Condor because of the difficulties of fully explaining what this uh, phenomenon was. However, what I also wanted to try to do was to show that although Operation Condor was clearly the most lethal moment of transnational repression with the highest number of victims, what we also need to understand is that the uh, very existence of Operation Condor built on a, a much longer trajectory of similar practices that had been taking place for a number of years. And it's exactly because of the previous practices that we get to the Condor system being such a sophisticated, ambitious but also successful, of course, in a negative way because of the high number of victims. But effectively, Condor is so successful because of what had happened also prior to that. And so um, what I do in the first part of the book is to describe these five phases of transnational repression in providing this longer historical view to better understand how Condor came about, but also how Condor eventually um, sort of started to unravel. And so the first phase um, covers the period of August 1969 until January 1974. And I call this uh, first phase embryonic interaction in indicating the sort of the stepping stones uh, through which this phenomenon of transnational repression begins to take shape. And this first period uh, has a relatively low number of victims. Um, I was able to identify 50 victims. And again, all of the numbers that I mentioned are quite conservative uh, because I adopted quite strict criteria to identify the victims. So I, I suspect that there's more victims uh, than the ones I, I mentioned. So I always say at least uh, 50 victims, such as in, in this first phase. And what is interesting in this first phase is that we see how um, the police forces and uh, military attaches in different embassies across the southern cone uh, begin to develop these networks of bilateral uh, exchanges of information, uh, joint operations, um, and also clandestine uh, rendition of prisoners, uh, focusing specifically on prisoners and exiles, perceiving 
these individuals as a threat to their countries. And the key turning point in this first phase is the um, coup in Chile by uh, Pinochet in September 1973, after which we see a large spike in cases because the Chilean dictatorship went after the thousands of political exiles that were living in Chile at the time. Many of them managed to escape to Argentina, but many others were uh, imprisoned, tortured, and some of them killed. So in this first phase, we begin to see how exiles and political refugees start to be the targets of specific international operations. The second phase, which I called uh, police coordination, takes place between February 1974 and January 1975. And in this phase, we have at least uh, 55 victims. And these 55 victims take place in a relatively short period of time of less than a year, in which we see the uh, military regimes to begin to uh, move away from just having these bilateral ad hoc collaborations in going after exiles, and they begin to set up a, f- a more formal system that would enable them to be more successful in these tasks. In fact, we discovered through some US declassified documents, but also documents in South America, that in late February 1974, there was a meeting of the head of the police forces of Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, Paraguay, and Uruguay that met in Buenos Aires at the invitation of the head of the Argentine Federal Police. And they agree to set up a formal system to coordinate their action in information exchange, in having police officers permanently stationed in Argentina to monitor exiles and to participate in operations and to also create a communications channel that would be devoted to just exchanging information on this issue. So we begin to see a shift towards a more formal system and this uh, relatively high number of victims in a short period of time illustrates how this Um, new system that is set up is quite successful. The third phase um, is called hybrid cooperation and covers the year between February 1975 and February 1976. And we have at least 101 victims during these 12 months. And what is interesting about this period is that we also begin to see how military forces start to take part in these operations. In the previous two phases, the key uh, actors in this transnational repression was the police and military attaches. And we see an increasing role of military intelligence, also because, of course, of the coups in in Chile and also in Uruguay, and the military becoming the uh, dominant uh, force. So we see a more active role of military intelligence, but also the uh, coexistence of both bilateral and multilateral operations with regard to the abduction of refugees. Of this uh, this phase, we have an emblematic case of a Chilean and Argentine, um, uh, sorry, two militants, um, one Chilean, one Argentine, who are abducted in Paraguay and they are interrogated in that country. And then we have an operation by Chilean agents who travel to Paraguay to collect the Chilean activist and take him back to Santiago, where he was eventually disappeared. So we, we begin to see how the system is becoming more formal and that operations are no longer bilateral, as in the beginning, but also multilateral with agents from different countries. And it is also at this time that um, the collaboration deepens even further because um, the head of the Chilean secret police called uh, DINA, um, General uh, Manuel Contreras, 
he organizes a an intelligence gathering in Santiago in late November 1975, inviting representatives of the neighboring countries to join this meeting because, and we are lucky to have the invitation letter that he sent out with his uh, um, that he sent out to the counterparts across the region and it says explicitly that the existing arrangements that they have in place are no longer sufficient and that they need to establish a better system that would enable the military regimes to tackle what at the time was labeled the threat of communist subversion which was specifically embodied in that uh, in that moment in the uh, JCR, the Revolutionary Coordinating Junta, which was a coordinated body that brought together uh, four uh, guerrilla groups: uh, the ELN from Bolivia, MIR from Chile, ERP PRT from Argentina, and the MLN Tupamaros in Uruguay, and so using as a pretext the um, collaboration between the guerrilla groups of the southern cone, the military forces also decide to uh, deepen their existing practices and networks of collaboration, allegedly to respond to the threats of these guerrilla groups. But in practice, we know that they targeted uh, actually a much larger number of political and social activists than, uh, in fact, guerrilla militants. And this is how we get to the fourth phase of the Condor system, uh, which emerged out of this gathering in Santiago, organized by uh, Contreras, uh, where representatives of Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Uruguay, and uh, and Paraguay uh, met and agreed to set up this new system that effectively constituted a um, complex web of bilateral and multilateral operations that were conducted against exiles all across the region. In fact, we have in this period between March 1976 and December 1978, at least 487 victims so a very large number of victims in this period. And the Condor system had um, three main uh, pillars. Um, the first pillar was a shared database um, that contained information on all the militant and political activists that the various military regimes were keen in locating and effectively eliminating. And secondly, they created the Condortel communication system that was an encrypted and secret channel that enabled the Condor members to quickly exchange information about their targets and also to organize uh, joint operations. Um, and finally, the third pillar was the uh, Condor Eje Operations Office that was located in Buenos Aires, Argentina. As I mentioned a little while ago, uh, by the mid-1970s, Argentina had the largest proportion of refugees and exiles. So it's no surprise that the, oper- the main operations office of Condor was located in Buenos Aires, close to all of the exiles that were being targeted. And this office was manned uh, by Argentine officers, but they also had permanent representatives from Chile and from Uruguay, and at times representatives coming specifically from Bolivia and Paraguay for uh, targeted operations. Mm-hmm. And this was the apex of the Condor uh, operation, wasn't it? Exactly. So this uh, period of the Condor system was the apex of uh, the decade of transnational repression that took place in South America. Um, Firstly, because of the large number of victims, so almost 500 victims at this time, but also because of the nature of Condor system. What we have is this sophisticated structure with a database on targeted victims, 
with the secret and dedicated communications channel and operations uh, center that was in charge of planning and conducting the operations. So we see how this phase builds on elements of the previous phases that I was mentioning, but takes them literally to the next level in terms of the ambition of uh, what this system wanted to, to achieve. And in fact, the last uh, feature that I wanted to share with you about this period is that in addition to the operations in South America, there was also a separate but connected still to Condor unit called Teseo unit, which was basically a sort of even more secret phase within the secret Operation Condor whereby special uh, units would be sent outside the region. So even another step in terms of the ambition of not just creating a sort of a borderless area of terror in South America, but actually conducting operations outside of South America, uh, specifically in France, and potentially also there there were operations planned in the UK. Um, And... So this specific TSEO unit was tasked with going after exiles who had managed to escape from South America and were in Europe. Um, We also know the emblematic case of the uh, murder of Chilean uh, diplomat and former ambassador to the US, Orlando Letelier, who was murdered in a car bomb um, at the end of September 1976 in Washington, D.C., uh, which I think many suspect were was one of these uh, Teseo operations, uh, given that it took place uh, in the territory of the United States. So we can see how in this phase we have not only a higher number of victims, but a sort of a more institutionalized uh, um, system of coordination and even the ambition to conduct uh, similar operations in Europe and the United States. And so just to um, quickly close with the final phase, since it's quite quite brief, um, this phase is called post-condor dynamics and covered, covers the years 1975 to 1981. Um, in this phase, we have at least 112 victims. And we see in this final phase that the collaboration goes back to what it looked like in the beginnings, so in the early 1970s, when we have mainly just bilateral collaborations between the countries. And here what we have is that by the late 1970s, uh, not only um, these military regimes had been uh, quite successful in cracking down on political opposition, both at home and abroad, uh, but we also had a return to traditional uh, territorial-based conflicts and tensions in South America. Argentina and Chile were at the time uh, almost at the brink of war with each other because of the territorial demarcation in the uh, Beagle Channel. And because of the return of this traditional uh, potential situation of war, we see how the heart of Condor, which was the axis between Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay, falls apart. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we see this return to more bilateral uh, operations. That's a very thorough breakdown of the five distinct phases and also the the complex apparatus of this brutal transnational repression uh, system. As I mentioned earlier, and the readers of the book will know this, that's the first part, and you deal with with transnational repression. But in the second part, which is just as important, you deal with another core subject, which is transnational justice. And I found it very interesting as well, because it's a very compelling account and exploration of this subject. In this part, you set out a very interesting and new analytical framework on justice seekers. Could you outline it for our listeners? 
Definitely. So um, the concepts of uh, justice seekers really emerged in in my thinking as part of the extensive field work that I conducted in South America in order to write this book. I spent uh, four years in Argentina, which was my base, uh, but then I traveled extensively to Chile, to Uruguay, to Brazil and to Paraguay as well. And as I was conducting this research, it really became clear in my mind um, that some of the uh, justice goals that were achieved across the region, but also in trials in Italy that we've had on Operation Condor, that the key drivers and catalysts for these uh, criminal verdicts that were achieved were people, <laughs> uh, basically. And uh, they were the ones who had been fighting uh, literally with all the uh, legal tools at their disposal in order to undermine the uh, policies of silence and impunity that had been prevalent, not only during the times of the military dictatorships, but also since the return of democracy across South America in the 1980s and 90s. And so with this concept of justice seekers, I tried to capture these relentless efforts that varied individuals have carried out as part of their lives in order to achieve justice. And in the existing publications on human rights um, and transitional justice, we um, have had a number of analytical categories that help us understand when justice is possible or when impunity prevails. And many of these categories, for example, look at the role of um, civil society, at the power of uh, veto players, the role of judicial actors, the pressure from international bodies and institutions, or the role of the executive government, uh, sorry, the executive power, uh, which is especially uh, important in South America where we have uh, presidential systems. And so while these categories are uh, helpful in uh, having us understand why some countries have progressed more than others in trying to achieve justice, what I felt was missing in these categories is that um, it wasn't really clear who were the exact actors who were uh, carrying out these tasks that enabled justice to take place. And what I also wanted to capture was the fact that justice seekers, although a large number of them come from civil society and human rights groups, um, they are not only within that sphere. Uh, because when you look at the history of some of these, these trials and truth-seeking efforts, you see, in fact, that also many individuals within uh, the executive, including some former presidents, have acted as justice seekers. We have many judges and prosecutors that were also justice seekers. So I wanted to sort of dig deeper into these existing analytical categories to see why some specific individuals would be motivated to undertake what is effectively an uphill struggle in trying to achieve justice and to break the dominant pattern of impunity and accountability. And so this is really the idea behind justice seekers. And I also, in the book, distinguish between a typology of justice seekers, one group um, that I define impunity challengers, and the second group that I call uh, strategic facilitators. And I created this distinction because um, since we are talking about people, uh, I wanted to capture that uh, we are all, um, even when we work towards the same goal, we may also be driven by distinct agendas and motives uh, behind our actions. And um, even individuals who may not necessarily be driven by a, a justice desire or a desire to 
promote and protect human rights, they may still carry out some actions that may be strategic because they enable the overcoming of some obstacles or some judicial barriers. So they nonetheless contribute to the broader objective of justice. So just to give you an example, um, in the book I talk about a number of impunity challengers and these often relate to survivors of Operation Condor and relatives of um, uh, of victims that, of course, have a clear motive in terms of wanting to achieve justice for the specific crimes that their loved ones uh, had to had to go through. Um, but then we also have individuals that I categorize as strategic facilitators. And one example is a former um, Uruguayan soldier, so quite an, an unlikely <laughs> justice seeker, because in, in fact he was part of the um, Uruguayan uh, military force, who was the uh, main uh, body that systematically uh, conducted violations of human rights. And he actually participated in a Condor operation organized between uh, Brazil and Uruguay that resulted in in the abduction of a Uruguayan family that lived in exile in Porto Alegre, southern Brazil. But after a couple of years, he decided to abandon um, the um, armed forces in Uruguay and to move away from the country to actually try to reach Europe to begin a new life. And as he fled initially to Brazil, he reached out to a local NGO in Porto Alegre called uh, Justice and Human Rights Movement. And he provided a very detailed declaration about this operation uh, that was called Operation Broken Shoe that had taken place in late 1978 uh, and whereby the Uruguayan family had been abducted and taken back from Brazil to Uruguay. And the striking element of this declaration is that it provided uh, exact details about the names of all of the military officers uh, on the Uruguayan side that had been planning the operation from Montevideo and had reached out to their counterparts in Brazil in order to undertake this joint abduction plan. And so this testimony uh, that he provided uh, for his own motives, because he was trying to uh, move to Europe to begin a new life, nonetheless proved to be extremely useful uh, at the time of one of the very few trials, probably the only one actually, that took place in South America, so in Brazil, still during the dictatorship in 1980, which led to the conviction of two police officers for the abduction of the Uruguayan family. And the power of this testimony was that although there were witnesses of the abduction uh, and their testimonies, um, this soldier knew the operation from the inside of Condor, we could say. And so his testimony complemented the one of the survivors and of the other witnesses, providing a key elements on the high-ranking uh, Uruguayan military officials that had planned the operation. And so this soldier ends up being a strategic facilitator to the cause of justice because although that was not probably his for- first motive in giving the testimony, uh, nonetheless, this piece of information uh, became crucial in revealing uh, what had been taking place. Yes, and it's, it's a very useful example you mentioned because I was just about to ask you about the initial attempts to expose transnational repression. You mentioned this was the first uh, conviction, uh, as we learn in the book, but can you tell us a bit more about the initial attempts while in a dictatorship of truth seekers to expose this complex transnational repression that was uh, carrying out these atrocities in South America? Sure. So I think this is one of the most... Uh 
powerful stories that I think I tell in the book, because although um, we know that uh, victims and um, survivors and activists were um, trying to denounce the crimes at the very time in which they were being perpetrated, some of the stories surrounding Condor were successful in an unexpected way, I would say, and they are very illustrative of these relentless efforts of justice seekers that in the same year, 1976, that we know was the worst year in terms of both domestic repression across South America, but also the worst year of Operation Condor. It's in this same year of 1976 that we begin to see the first powerful testimonies by some of the survivors um, being given to uh, Amnesty International or the US Congress that start to draw attention to Operation Condor. Although, of course, the name Condor was unknown at the time, but there was still already the identification of these collaborative practices between the military regimes at the time. And one story that I would like to share with the listeners is the one of a Uruguayan journalist uh, called Enrique Rodriguez Larreta. He uh, was in his mid-50s in uh, July 1976 when his daughter-in-law called him to let him know that his son, also called Enrique, had gone uh, missing in Argentina. And so Mr. Rodriguez Larreta travels to Buenos Aires uh, to be with his daughter-in-law, and together they undertake the, by then, usual um, sort of struggle of relatives who were knocking on all doors from the church to hospitals to morgues to national and international institutions in the country to to try to find out where Enrique was. And as part of this uh, ordeal, uh, Mr. Rodriguez Larreta and his daughter-in-law were also abducted and taken to the same uh, secret detention center called Automotores Orletti that was in mid-1976 the secret prison where most condor victims would be taken. And in this center, um, they are in a way reunited with Enrique (laughs) that they were looking for, uh, as well as another uh, 20 Uruguayan exiles who had been abducted in different waves of uh, operations uh, since June uh, 1976. So they are kept in this uh, detention center in inhuman conditions. Uh, They are, of course, tortured. And after about 10 days, this large group of over 20 Uruguayan exiles is taken back to Montevideo on a secret overnight flight. So uh, very similar to the clandestine rendition flights that we've unfortunately uh, learned to know during the the war on terror in the last 20 years. And um, then they are uh, returned to their country of origin in this secret uh, rendition flight. And some of these 20 prisoners are uh, put in jail, accused of, of course, subversion and different types of uh, crimes against the Uruguayan regime. But Mr. Rodriguez Larreta, because he was much older than these uh, younger, uh, younger activists, but also he, was, he had been a journalist in a conservative uh, newspaper in the country that had actually uh, supported the dictatorship, he uh, was freed. Uh, but little did the military dictatorship imagine that Mr. Rodriguez Larreta would begin a sort of backward journey uh, trying to retrace the steps of uh, documenting, uh, first of all, the clandestine prison where they were held in Montevideo. Then he traveled back to Argentina to uh, try to locate the uh, what we now know was called Orletti uh, prison at the time. And he was able to find it with the 
help of the local uh, Uruguayan exile community. He even managed to take a photo uh, of the outside of this secret center. And with this information, and of course, his own very detailed uh, testimony, and I think the fact that he was a journalist, of course, contributed to the fact that he was able to create a very solid and compelling account of what had happened to him and the other 20 Uruguayan exiles. He traveled to Amnesty, to London, and to give testimony before Amnesty International, uh, a testimony that was released in March 1977 and was extremely comprehensive in showing the close collaborative practices that had been taking place at the time. And this testimony was, uh, I would say, one of the key turning points in the denunciation of Operation Condor because it uh, reverberated well beyond just the UK, but Mr. Larreta also traveled to other European countries and also to uh, Mexico and the US. And his testimony was uh, taken also up by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights at the time, but also significantly by a U.S. Democratic Senator, Ed Koch, who used part of uh, Mr. Rodriguez Larreta's testimony as part of his efforts to try to get Congress to vote an amendment that would successfully, uh, when they voted in October 1976, cut military aid to Uruguay because of the egregious human rights violations that had taken place in the country. So uh, Mr. Rodriguez Larreta's testimony was significant in its own right for denouncing the crimes, but also in providing evidence uh, to uh, Senator Koch that was able to eventually cut this military aid that the U.S. had been providing for years and years, not only to Uruguay, to many of the countries in South America, but by using human rights concerns, Koch was able to get Congress to, to vote this amendment and this line of military support and aid was cut to Uruguay starting 1977. Mm-hmm. And that's the initial attempts. And as we know, but now, there is a large amount of emblematic judicial proceedings in the Southern Cones and the now, so, the now so-called mega causas, which are large criminal proceedings comprising numerous victims and perpetrators on Operation Condor, some of which have just recently produced a veredict or just recently finished. You, you tackle these in the latter chapters of your book. Could you tell us more about these proceedings, especially the more recent ones, the mega causas that appear on the later chapters of the book? So there have been at least uh, 45 uh, different criminal proceedings across both South America, but also Europe and the US. Uh, but as you say, some of the most significant uh, trials that I look at in the book are the mega causa that uh, took place one in Argentina and the other one in Italy. And I dedicate one chapter to each of these trials, also because I was fortunate enough to be able to spend uh, two years in Buenos Aires monitoring the Argentine trial in person, and then subsequently to travel to Rome. Uh, it's not too, too distant from, from Oxford. So I was able to also monitor some of the appeals uh, proceeding in the Italian Operation Condor trial. And these uh, mega causas are um, especially significant because in both cases, they attempt to um, include a, a large number of uh, victims and perpetrators. And in the case of these specific uh, condor megacausas, what is remarkable is that we have perpetrators and victims from a large number of countries, which is quite unusual in criminal trials uh, and does reflect this transnational nature of the crimes that are being investigated by these by these courts. The um, trial in Argentina, 
I would say was particularly uh, illustrative because it includes uh, the cases of over 170 victims, uh, mostly from Uruguay and Chile, but also from Argentina, from Bolivia, from Paraguay, Brazil and Peru. And there were initially 27 defendants, um, mostly Argentine, but also one Uruguayan military intelligence uh, colonel who was extradited from Brazil to Argentina to stand trial. And this is significant in its own merit because we know that Brazil is the country that in South America has progressed the least in providing accountability for dictatorship-era crimes. And so the fact that this extradition was authorized to Argentina was uh, very important also in the Brazilian context as well. And in the case of the Argentine uh, trial, we have uh, several uh, important elements. Uh, first one is that this trial was one of just two that in the 1990s um, was part of these strategic efforts by justice seekers to try to break the wall of impunity that existed in the country. Um, and alongside the trial for the legal abduction of children, the Condor trial was the other one that quite slowly, uh, but still eventually made it uh, through uh, the uh, trial phase and contributed to this broader reopening of justice opportunities in Argentina. The second significant element of this Argentine trial is the fact that one of the charges uh, that was included is um, in Spanish called Asociación Ilicita, which translates to uh, criminal enterprise in, in English. And this was quite an innovative uh, charge that was presented by the petitioners back in the late 1990s, but was very powerful because it attempted to capture exactly this transnational element of collaboration that had been going on between the military regimes in South America. And it was quite powerful at the the day in which the verdict was read out in May 2016, to hear that the judges were condemning the different defendants, not only for carrying out the specific abductions of individuals, but also for being part of this transnational illicit association. And so this verdict is quite emblematic for exactly having the Argentine judges say that Condor was in fact a transnational criminal enterprise that was dedicated to the uh, elimination of political exiles across um, South America. And so um, these are the two uh, main points I would emphasize about the Argentine trials. Of course, there is more, but I want to say also a few things about the, the Italian trials. Um, these, the, these two trials, almost they have a very uh, similar history because both uh, petitions were filed in 1999 and then the Argentine one got to trial in 2013 and the Italian one in 2015, so their development has been taking place almost in, in parallel. And, well, in both cases, we now have definitive verdicts, also with the Italian uh, Supreme Court handing down all the final appeal sentences between earlier this year and uh, last summer. And the Italian trial, I think, is also uh, illustrative because here, we have also a broader number of defendants that were prosecuted, also including officials uh, from um, Brazil, although unfortunately that portion of the trial then had to be shelved because they all passed away. But there were also defendants from Bolivia and Peru uh, that also received uh, life sentences. Um, and so they were important steps ahead uh, with having uh, representatives of those countries being convicted for the crimes of Operation Condor. 
and one illustrative case that I want to mention is the um, case of the former uh, Navy officer from Uruguay, uh, Jorge Nestor Trocoli. He had fled Uruguay in 2007 and sought refuge in Italy because his uh, great-grandfather was Italian, so he also was an Italian citizen. And he had fled South America thinking that he would be safe from justice in Italy. But fortunately, within the context of this trial, uh, he was also prosecuted and has since um, July last year been serving his life sentence for the murder of uh, 26 between Uruguayan and Italian citizens that were assassinated in the context of Operation Condor. And so I think this case is quite illustrative because we have many instances of defendants trying to flee uh, justice. And I think what the Italian trial shows us is that no matter the passing of time from the crimes, but also no matter where you are, uh, there are um, criminal courts that are willing to prosecute the crimes against humanity that have been committed in the context of Operation Condor. And in fact, there is actually a new trial that will begin in July, so in just a month from from today, um, again in the courts of Rome, that will look at the three cases of um, two Italo-Argentine citizens and one Uruguayan citizen who were murdered during Operation Condor. And so we have this new trial beginning. So. I'm talking about a trial that just ended. The uh, momentum uh, toward justice continues both in Italy and in South America, where we are also waiting to see the appeal verdicts in a number of Condor trials, including the Chilean Condor trial in Santiago. Yes, and that's a very good way to link up with the question I'm going to ask, because it's something that happened in the past, but also keeps speaking to us in the present. And on that line, this is a question that I ask all my interviewees here on the podcast, and I think you addressed it in your book, and you have partly addressed it right now as well. But I did want to ask, ask you directly, how does your book speak to contemporary, or how do you think your book speaks to contemporary Latin American societies and to society as a whole? So I think the book speaks to um, societies in Latin America and beyond in, in a number of different uh, different ways. First of all, I think the, uh, these ongoing efforts to achieve justice um, illustrate how, although these events have taken place in a relatively recent past, they are still very much present, but also part of the futures of societies. Firstly, in South America, because of course, this is a history that took place in that region, but also speaks to similar situations that continue to happen across the world. And so I think the first message is that um, unless societies come to terms with the human rights violations that have been perpetrated, there is really no way to consolidate democracy on the one hand to ensure uh, the rule of law, but also to establish guarantees of non-repetition in terms of not only uh, having justice for the crimes that were committed, but also making sure that similar crimes such as these ones do not happen again into the present and futures of societies in Latin America and elsewhere. So I think the book really shows that unless you can deal with the legacy of the past, it becomes really difficult to look to the future. And in fact, this past is, uh, is a fundamental part of the histories of these countries, but also a history that needs to be looked at in order to face the present and the future. I also think the book, uh, although it focuses on a very specific phenomenon of transnational repression, is very 
much relevant to contemporary uh, situations across the globe. In fact, just last week, I was reading uh, the most recent report by Freedom House on transnational repression, and they were describing in this report how since uh, sorry, how since 2014, they have recorded over 700 cases of persecution of political exiles all across the world. And some of the main countries that uh, engage in uh, transnational repression are countries such as China, uh, Russia, Rwanda, um, uh, Belarus, and um, So a large number of uh, countries that continue to see uh, transnational repression as a viable policy option uh, in order to silence uh, political opponents that are uh, located all across the world. And so uh, reading this report uh, reminded me of the many parallels Uh, that I could see between what I was reading in this current report that talked about often cases in in Russia or Turkey or Belarus uh, and what I had been researching on South America about Condor. Of course, the context is different, but some of the key elements are the same in terms of the collaboration between autocratic regimes, Uh, the lack of respect of any uh, forms of human rights and resort to assassination plots and abductions uh, that are basically the same type of modus operandi of Condor in the 1970s that we continue to see today. So uh, sadly, the phenomenon of transnational repression is not something of the past. It's something that continues to take place. We've had cases here in the UK uh, with uh, both successful and unsuccessful assassination attempts. And so I think uh, the book and the uh, efforts for justice that are described in the book um, can really help us see um, how these practices continue to take place, but that there is an opportunity to achieve justice and that there are ways in which, uh, with the collection of enough evidence and testimonies, uh, the crimes of transnational repression in South America have now been documented and investigated by courts in uh, countries in both South America and Europe. And so I think the book is in a way a warning also to today's perpetrators of transnational repression that maybe justice is not happening now, but it will certainly happen in the near future. And then just finally, um, the last um, uh, point that I I would like to share with your readers is that some of the histories that I um, uh, researched on for writing this book Uh, regarding the illegal abduction of babies that took place in the context of Operation Condor and the uh, Argentine military dictatorship uh, more broadly, that we are seeing some of, uh, we are seeing similar practices, unfortunately, taking place again in the context of the war Uh, that is unfolding in Ukraine with an estimated over uh, 200,000 Ukrainian children having been forcibly taken to Russia where they are at risk of being adopted by Russian families uh, in that country. And so again, there are many parallels between the stories that I tell in the book and some of the current, uh, and it doesn't get any more current as these days uh, if we talk about the war in Ukraine. So we continue to see even parallels in these uh, types of human rights violations that took place in South America and that we see taking place today. But again, there um, there, are, there is light at the end of the tunnel because many of the trials that investigated Condor uh, Condor crimes also related to this illegal abduction of children. And as recently as uh, 2020, 
a court in Buenos Aires sentenced four Argentine intelligence officers to life in prisoner uh, to sorry to life in prison for a number of crimes, and these also included the illegal abduction of two Uruguayan children who were taken when his family was uh, kidnapped in 1976. Yes, definitely. I think your book speaks to the present in many ways, and also we must always take into account the past if we want to shape up a fairer present and future. Well, to finish the interview off now, uh, is there anything else you might want to add about the book, perhaps something we haven't touched upon? Um, no, I think we've been <laughs> very, <laughs> very comprehensive and we covered a lot of ground. Maybe I'll just add that uh, what I could out- outline today is just really the sort of tip of the iceberg and that there are so many uh, personal stories in the book uh, that I hope the listeners would want to read and that uh Although, of course, Operation Condor is a dark chapter of South America's history, I think the main takeaway, uh, for me at least, from 10 years of uh, doing research of this is really the resilience of the victims and of the justice seekers and how, against all odds, they have been able to achieve the conviction of over a hundred between civilian and military officers from South America and bring justice uh, for at least uh, for close to 300 cases of victims. So it does really speak of this uh, breaking of impunity and achievement of justice, which I think is, is very inspiring and speaks of the resilience uh, of the justice seekers from South America and beyond. Yes, 100%. Thank you very much, Francesca, again for joining us here on the New Books Network in Latin American Studies podcast to talk about your recently published book, The Condor Trials, Transnational Repression and Human Rights in South America. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that's all from us here today. Thank you for listening. Have a good day.